0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Walker Webcast. I'm hosting this discussion today from Walker & Dunlop's new headquarters in Bethesda, Maryland. And let me just say that it is so nice to be back in the office with all of my colleagues at WND. I would say, generally speaking, office is in no way dead And that the excitement and collaboration and appreciation for this new space is palpable throughout our office today. So to my guest, Kira D'Amato, spouse to Andrew, mother to Tommy and Quinn, real estate broker, cousin to Walker & Dunlop rock star Travis D'Amato, United States Marathon record holder, and all-around kick-ass woman. (laughs) <laughs> it is such a pleasure to have you with me today, Kira. I can't thank you enough for joining me. My first question to you is, where's the cowboy hat they gave you when you won Houston?
1: I actually have it. It's right. They sent it to me. And this is a funny part. After the race, one of the volunteers for the Chevron Houston Marathon was assigned to be my cowboy hat handler. So he was there to make sure no like sticky fingers or whatever got on the hat or and then he shipped it to me. So I have it. It's actually right over here. Pretty incredible. I've never won a marathon before, but I am so thankful the one that I won came with the cowboy hat. I mean, that's pretty awesome.
0: It is really awesome. So I want to start by asking you just a couple questions on that incredible race. And then I want to back up a bunch, talk about your career. And then I want to come back and, and finish talking about that race and some of the specifics about it. But one of the things that surprised me when I listened to your post-race commentary was that you said that you actually weren't feeling that good that day. And that you, you said here, I never felt that good. And then you went on to say, I wasn't feeling awesome, but I was feeling good enough to get it done. You ran that race in a pace of five minute and 17 second miles. I can't believe for a second that you could possibly pull that off and break an American record not feeling awesome.
1: Yeah, that surprised me a little bit too. But I had like a lot of really long tempo runs and a lot of pace work that I was doing in the low five teens. So I was learning to run pretty comfortable at five, 12, five, 13 pace. So I thought going into the race, I felt like I could kind of lock in and cruise And I never really felt like locked in in cruising. So that surprised me a little bit. But I also know for years I've shown up and I've worked through tough weather, not feeling great, so many adverse conditions that I knew it didn't have to be perfect. I knew I could still perform because I've done that in practice with subpar conditions or just feeling so. And I think that took a little bit of the pressure off because I think if you go in hoping everything's perfect, when something goes wrong, it kind of makes you feel all out of whack. So that's why I was just thinking like just good enough, you know, it was in the twenties and it was a little breezy, but I'm like, this is good enough. I got out and I'm like, wasn't feeling great, but I'm like, I'm feeling good. And that's good enough today. So
0: I heard you talk about in the middle of the race, that struggle you had, and all of us who've run marathons before know it, not to the degree that you do of, that your mind starts negotiating with your body and that you sit there and you sort of have this, all right, body doesn't feel that great, but mind's telling the body to keep on going. Given the importance of that race and trying to set the American record, which you successfully did, was that mind-body negotiation more challenging in that day than it has been in the past?
1: Absolutely. And I think I was going into a zone where no American woman had gone before. So I think just mentally that struggle and marathons are so funny to me because at the beginning, you're super positive. You're like, you know, I got this. And you're doing all those positive mantras, like, don't stop believing, keep it going. You got this. And then somewhere where everything begins to hurt, your mind tries to convince your whole body to slow down. And I feel like I've given into that voice Before in marathons, and you finish and you're like, oh, but what if I would have pushed through that? What if that wasn't my limit? What if I figured out a way just to tell that voice to like sit down and be quiet? So, when that started coming up, you kind of just like you said, just you start negotiating and you figure out anything you say can say to yourself to like keep you going forward. So, I mean, originally for me, I was just focusing water stop to water stop. They're about three miles apart. So that's how I was kind of just breaking down the race, just get to the next water stop at this pace. But then like you start getting into like a kind of dark place that you're like, why am I doing this? This really, really hurts. I willingly, I volunteered. I was excited about this race. What is wrong with me? And then I got into a point where I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna set the American record, whether it's today or another race. I'm going to do it. But if it's not today, I'm going to have to go and put in months and months and months of more training. I'm going to have to get up early. I'm going to have to do exactly what I did to get here. And then I'm going to have to be back at this spot and figure out how to work through it. And that seems like more work than just working through it right now. So I'm just going to work through it. I'm going to finish. I'm going to get that record. And then I don't ever have to run again if I don't want to. So that was kind of the deal I made with myself, which is kind of crazy. And then you finish. You're like, that was awesome. I want to do that again. I don't know. You, just, you get into a weird place. You just got to come prepared to tell your mind whatever it takes to keep moving forward.
0: One of the pacers who you ran with made a comment after the race that and and I guess he knew the Houston. He's from Houston and he knew the course exceptionally well. And one of the things he said that I thought was so interesting was he said, I know the course well enough to find a second here and a second there. And given that Kira set the U.S. record by 26 seconds, we basically found a second per mile. And I thought about that. And first of all, it was kind of cool that it was Mm -hmm. a second per mile over 26 miles. But I also think about that in the sense of the pressure throughout the race. And you started out really on a record pace and then in the middle miles you fell back below that was there a moment that there kira where you sort of said if you don't get this thing back on track you're not getting the american record and was there a specific time in the race where you said i've got to pick this back up or i'm not going to hit it
1: yeah and callum neff the pacer you're referring to he's amazing and i credit so much of that strategy and just taking the mental burden for me in that race but and also you were so clever to point out 26 seconds. People are like, man, you crushed that. I'm like, you know what? In a marathon, like I like slid into home plate there. Like that wasn't crushing. If, you know, I hadn't uh, run the tangents, it would have been game over. But the course also is a big loop. So when you're running from, I think it was about 10 miles to 18, you're running north. So you had a huge headwind there. And that was, I think, when I was struggling the most too. And we kind of predicted that's where the wind was going to be a little bit tougher. So I just kept telling myself, if I can make it to 18, where you kind of turn right and you start heading back, the wind hopefully will be at my back. So working through that, I think naturally we slowed down just a little bit because of that wind. But I think also we slowed down a little bit because they could see that I was just, you know, a step back from them. So they, you know, instead of like breaking that chain, they would kind of ease up and let me catch up and then try to pick it back up. But I also, since I wasn't feeling great, I wasn't looking at my watch. And we had a a pace car there with a big scroll on it telling us what our projected time was, our last mile. I wasn't even looking at that because I thought that that feedback just wouldn't help me. Because if we were too slow, I'd get frustrated. If we were too fast, I was thinking, why are we running this fast? not feeling good. Let's slow down. So I was like, you know what? They know what the plan is. I trust these guys. Just like, put your head down and work. So yeah, and I tell people too, I slowed down in the middle just to make it a little dramatic. Because I think people are like, oh man, once you slow down in your marathon, it's over. But once we turned the corner to 18 and coming back with the eight miles, we didn't really have a tailwind like we thought, but there wasn't the headwind. So that just really we were able to pick it back up and lock into even faster pace. And I think somewhere around like twenty or twenty one, we hit a five fourteen mile, which was well under pace. And my other pacer, sealess was like, Yeah, Kira, you've got this. And then I was starting, you know, once things start going your way again, you start that kind of builds some momentum.
0: So I wanna A, remind people that you say I slid in 26 seconds breaking the American record is actually a huge margin (laughs) of victory, if you will. Um, And the other thing I want to remind people of is that you beat the number two woman in the marathon by 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So let's keep all this. And I appreciate you saying, yeah, (laughs) but it was down to one second per mile. But that's one of the key things that I find to be so incredible about your whole story as it relates to the way that you came back to running. And so let's back the videotape up for a moment, Kira, and kind of walk people through because when I talk about your incredible accomplishments as a runner, it's in the broader context of your incredible accomplishments as a mom, as a professional, and as someone who is 38 years old and just set the American record. So you grew up actually in this area in Northern Virginia. You went to Oakton High School and were actually a soccer player and decided to pick up running to get in shape for soccer. And my understanding of your story is that you got out there and you ran some cross country in the fall, getting ready for soccer in the spring, and you kind of never looked back. At that time, Kira, was it that you actually had a true love for running and it made you feel good? Or was it that you were really good at it and you got attention for being good at it?
1: I think initially it was the attention, to be brutally honest, because running is tough. And like getting into running, is really hard and like when people come up to me and they're like oh i'm not a runner and I'm like, man, I've, I've been there. Like give yourself some time, be patient with yourself. It takes a little bit to build that love. It takes like weeks of running to get to the point where you don't, it feels like you're floating a little bit while you're running and you get the endorphins going. But yeah, I think it was the attention. And I think I started out and I was pretty good at it. And then I found like a community of girls on the Oakden team that immediately became my best friends. I felt like I found my people and then I learned to love it. But yeah, I don't think I loved it right off the bat.
0: So you went on to American University and you were a four-time All-American. You won, I think it's 11 Patriot League titles. At that time, you were a shorter distance. Well, for track and field, you were a longer distance runner, but in comparison to a marathon, you were a shorter distance runner. So you were doing 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters. And you come out of AU, having been a four-time All-American, and you decide that you want to make a run to be a professional runner. And so from 2006 to 2009, you made a a run at making running your life. Talk about that period of time, because as I understand it, you had huge aspirations to be on the Olympic team, and everyone thought that you were going to be on the Olympic team. Did you, in that period of time, to be blunt about it, kind of put the cart before the horse?
1: Yes and no. I think that for athletes or just people in general with goals, I think you've got to dream big and see where you're going, right? So ever since I was little, the Olympics have been, and they're still a, a dream of mine. And I think it's really healthy to have those big, outrageous goals that you're working towards. And who knows like if you get it or if you don't, but it's going to be like a really great journey. So I think it's important to set those. But then I also had the more realistic short-term goals that I was aiming for on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis as well. But it was really cool. And I think the biggest thing for me just getting out of college and seeing that being a professional athlete is a possible career choice. That really opened my eyes to where my life would take me. And I felt like I was really following my heart and my passion at the time. And I felt really lucky to be doing something every day that I felt so passionate about. And I just, you know, I'd be out in runs and be like, wow, this is kind of my job, not getting paid very much, you know, but but that's okay, because I'm really happy. Yeah. And then I had a series of injuries, which pushed me out. I had to get a surgery that wasn't covered by my insurance at the time. So I was kind of forced out, which really sucked because it wasn't on my terms, leaving the sport. I felt like someone else, you know, or just my body made that decision for me. That kind of stuck that that dream was taken away.
0: I've heard you say that you were known as Kira, the runner, and now you're the Kira, the runner who didn't run.
1: Mm-hmm. So how
0: did you find Kira?
1: Yeah. And I think that is so important. That's I think why I was limited in my success before is because there was so much of my just individuality based into like my confidence was all about running. So I think having that break and then learning that, Hey, I'm also curious. Like I first got, I went to my computer and mathematics degree and worked in it for a little bit. And then I eventually got into real estate. My mom is a real estate agent. So I started working for her brokerage. And I feel like that is, you know, as far as a career, I feel like real estate, it's just in my blood, I guess. But it was really fun for me to learn the different sides. And then I became a wife and a mother. And then I learned to bring running back into my life for fun, right? It was just my fun, healthy thing. Like my husband and I would go on running dates or I'd meet a girlfriend, go for a run, or someone would say there's a local race. And I'd be like, hey, I'll show up. Let's see if I can win my age group, you know? And it just, there was no pressure. And I think just learning how to put running in my life with no pressure really, I think, is why I'm sitting here today, because I still feel no pressure from running, but I have a whole bunch of goals that I'm kind of like, well, if I hit them, great. And if I don't, you know, I still got my family, my kids, my real estate, I'm still happy. So it's really brought me into like a pretty like risk-free zone, I guess.
0: So a couple of questions on all that. And I think this whole issue about stress and pressure and coming out of a extremely successful collegiate career into a professional career and then taking time off and coming back to it is fascinating and and i heard you after houston talking about the fact that you look at your running career now as if it's this A great gift and B, there's kind of nothing to lose so you can take risks. Mm-hmm. And I had Jim Currier, the former number one tennis player in the world on the webcast a couple of weeks ago. And, and Jim was talking about his upbringing and that one of the greatest gifts that his parents gave him was his parents gave him the ability to take risks and lose and fail. And there are many, many incredibly talented young tennis players in the united states today who have parents who don't allow them to fail that have an expectation of constantly winning and therefore it puts so much stress on them that they fall out as you think about the combination of physical fitness and mental i'll call it preparation if you will or mental well-being now versus when you were a competitive runner either in college or after college Other than the fact that you're doing it out of a true love now, and then you loved it as well. Is there anything else from a kind of a expectation standpoint that allows you to be so successful now versus previously?
1: Yeah, I think a little bit maturity. I mean, obviously, and just my perspective on everything has changed. And I think I just have more patience. Everything in my early 20s, I wanted it now. Like I worked really hard. I'd get nervous for a race and I'd work even harder, which isn't necessarily smarter. And so now I think being in my late 30s and figuring out how to work smarter. And then I just have now decades of experience. I've fallen short and kind of like you were mentioning, I've figured out a lot of ways to lose that I finally figured out how to win. And I was in the race and I especially in that marathon, I was thinking like, I have gotten to this point and I've caved to that voice. that's telling me to slow down. I'm tired of caving, you know, and I've just, I've lost or come short of my goals so many times that I just didn't want that to happen again. I just felt like this was my time. So, and I think that like is comes in an experience, you know, all these years I've been putting tools in my toolbox and I finally figured out the right tools to use, I guess.
0: It's so fascinating. I just, I love it. It like gives me goosebumps to think about it. And because one of the reasons that you had to give up running was you were getting stress fractures Mm -hmm. and the stress fracture is actually a medical condition, but something tells me that a little bit of your own personal stress of pushing your training and trying to be as good as you were expected to be help create some of those stress fractures and and so there's almost a it's not a play on words a stress fracture is actually a stress fracture it's not created in the mind it's created in the legs and at the same time that combination of mental health and physical health is so evidently working right now in how you're performing as an athlete.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean in my early 20s when I really wasn't getting paid to run very much. I was working part-time jobs just to pay my rent and to keep running too. It was hard to fit everything in my life. So going into a race, knowing there was prize money on it, there was just so much more pressure on that. Fast forward to now, like I have my real estate. I have a successful career that before I was sponsored with Nike that I could buy shoes and I could travel and I had the luxury of doing all of these things without really worrying. And I think just taking that pressure is really freeing as well. And I think that it's allowed me to make my own schedule and to pick the races that I think I'm going to do the best or, it's just really opened me up to really focused on what my limits are, how fast I can run. And that's it.
0: So you had a surgery to repair something called a tarsal coalition. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that surgery does, but I guess just for listeners to understand the injury that took you out of running and then having to deal with that injury today, do you still have side effects from having had that surgery and what they did to your ankle?
1: No, but I still am really, so the tarsal coalition, I think there was two bones that were connected where they shouldn't have been. And I think I was just born that way. And I am not a doctor or a scientist, and this is not the medical terminology, but because there wasn't, That release there, it was putting extra pressure on other bones in my foot. So it was breaking other bones around it. So they had to go in and separate those bones. And since then, I didn't know if I'd ever be able to run at this level. But once I got that surgery, I thought, well, at least I can run again. You know, let's just run for fun. It's been in the back of my mind my whole time. It's like, how long is my ankle going to hold up? I've never had any issues since, but I also do a lot of exercises. I do a lot of like, Toe yoga and ankle drills and stuff just to make sure that that foot is strong enough to like handle like my load. Toe yoga.
0: I don't think we're going to get anyone. I don't think I really really. anyone, <laughs> don't think think really anyone listening to, to this start doing toe yoga. I think that's a, definitely a rehab exercise. <laughs> that only someone who's had what you have is asked to do. So exactly. what I understand you did is, as, as it relates to getting back to running, was that you'd had your sons Tommy and Quinn you wanted to lose some pounds that you'd put on while while having children and you went out to start running again. I find that to be fascinating because it is such a normal thing to do. You had this amazing running career, but you've stepped off that track. You've gotten married, by the way, to a track star from the Air Force Academy. So let's not forget that your kids are getting amazing genes from both <laughs> you and your husband, Anthony. And then you just say, let me go start doing it. And here you said that your first run you couldn't go for more than three minutes. Come on. Yeah, my,
1: my first on. run back, I felt like I was running on a different planet that gravity was like 20 times what was on earth just because coming back after pregnancy, like I was still a lot heavier and just everything shifted. So just nothing felt normal. So I was like, just run three minutes. And I made it to maybe a minute, maybe 90 seconds, and I just stopped. I'm like, I can't go any further. So I I walked home and I was feeling down, but I'm like, you know what? I'll try again tomorrow. Like today I didn't do it, but I'll try again tomorrow. We'll see. And eventually I made it that and just kept building. But I think also that's just why I love running and why I think it's so beautiful is like your why am I doing this can evolve throughout your whole life. And I think like in high school, it was to prove to the soccer coach and to build confidence. And I was a little shy. So to find that community and then Fast forward into my 30s, I was running for health reasons. And then my husband, Anthony, was deployed with the military for a while. And I have so much help from family nearby, like with the kids. But that was really tough for me. Like I was really lonely. My partner in crime was gone. So I filled that void with running. And we kind of joke that if he hadn't deployed, I may not be here. But it's kind of true because, you know, I put the kids down at like 6 or 6.30. they were like zero and one. And I'd get on the treadmill, you know, I'm like, well, what else am I to do? I'll just get on the treadmill or and then it was chaotic. So I needed a little space to myself. So I'd get a babysitter to come over and I didn't want 10 minutes, 20 minutes to myself. I'm like, hey, I'm going to try running for like an hour and a half. That's the kind of like space I need right now where I could just listen to my podcast or my music and I just felt like I had a little more control over it. In high school, I started getting that feedback of just seeing the progress. And that's when it started getting a little bit more exciting as I just became obsessed with trying to hit, maybe I can run this many miles in a week, or maybe I can eventually I gifted a marathon entry to my husband for Christmas, which is like a thoughtful gift because <laughs> <laughs> marathon entries are expensive, but then also like kind of the worst gift ever. Cause then he had a train, and then I felt bad. So I was like, okay, I'll tell you what, I'll do it too. But that's where it like all started. And I did that marathon and I ran the whole way.
0: That was the shamrock in 2017. That was a 314, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's one. And I qualified for Boston. I couldn't believe I qualified for Boston because when everyone finds out you're a runner, they ask like, what's your mile time? Have you run Boston marathon? Those are like the two biggest runner questions. So I qualified for Boston and then that just kept going. I was like, well, if I can run 314, can I break three? And then I did that and was two minutes off the Olympic trials qualifier. And I was like, maybe I could qualify. Wouldn't that be crazy? Some mom realtor in her thirties qualifying for the Olympic trials. And then I qualified and I was like, well, I'm going to be there. I might as well like really show up. Like, let's see if I can really race and like, just see what I can do. Maybe I can make a team. That would be nuts. Everything just snowballed. And it wasn't like I said on this journey, to think, okay, I'm going to be the American record holder. It was just like step-by-step, step, and I kept saying, what's next? What's the next goal? Like, what's the next? Like, check, let's keep going. So.
0: so after running Boston and you kind of set your sights on getting to the U.S. trials, you got back together with your coach, Scott Rascoe, who had been your coach at D.C. Elite. Mm-hmm. Um, talk for a moment about that transition for all practical purposes, being an amateur, doing your own training, and then getting back with a professional coach As good and as focused as Scott.
1: That was the smartest thing I think I could have ever done because it's really hard to train yourself just internally. I think it's really hard. You kind of need an outside perspective to help. And then also, I don't know, compared to what my coach, Scott Roscoe knows, I know so little about running compared to him. So I think it was really smart that he put our training into like a very intentional way and when I asked him to be my coach, he's like, well, are you going to listen? I'm like, well, well, mostly if it's fun, then I'll listen. Yeah, that's fine. So I think we are on the same page that we're going to work hard, but this is going to be really fun. And I appreciate that he's allowed me to jump into like fun local races or just even for workouts, just jumping in. He's just a phenomenal coach. And I think he thinks about marathon training differently than a lot of people in the US do. I think a lot of people are extremely high mileage, long runs and a lot of pounding. And for me, I work a lot on speed too. So those long runs and all that is there, but I do a lot of speed work to make sure that that marathon face is going to feel pretty relaxed.
0: So I know that 256 in Boston in 2018 was I don't want to call it wind enabled it was wind detriment and in the sense it was terrible weather and so it was a tough day to post a really good time but from that Boston time to working with Scott you then go run Berlin in two thirty four mm-hmm. and as I told you previously when I took my marathon time from 245 to 236 and took nine minutes off of it, I thought I had cured cancer. I mean, <laughs> I worked so hard to try and find those nine minutes between one Boston marathon and the next to get there. The concept that you went from a 256 to a 234 just baffles me. I understand that you were doing speed work, but I mean, that's just an amazing jump from those two times beyond doing a lot of tempo running and just putting it in, was there something else? Was it diet? Was it sleep? Was it just Scott's coaching? What was it that caused that dramatic step up in performance?
1: I think the biggest thing is just the consistency. I wasn't injured. I never really got sick. And I think leading into the trials, I thought about the last two years. So this was in February of 2020. In the last two years, I don't think I had to take one unplanned day off. And that's just consistent training. And I think when you add all that consistency together, something really special happens. So I think that's probably the most important thing. But then, you know, when I approach Scott, He said that he'd coach me, but I need to do X, Y, Z. I'm like, whoa, 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 this is fun. All I want to do is run. And then every like few months, he would trick me into adding something new into my training to just use different muscles or to strengthen something different. And he, over so slightly, because when you look at everything I do now, it's just crazy. And I tell him, like, how'd you trick me into doing this? I told you all I wanted to do is run. I don't want to stretch. I don't want to, but we slowly have built it all in. And I've learned why it's so important to be doing all of those things too. So I think he does a really great job stimulating me. I also think that coming from a place in 2018 when I ran Boston, I had, you know, a one-year-old, one and a half. You know, it takes a while for your body to get back and just build up. And I didn't have, like, a big base training. So for the 2017 to 2020, I consider, like, a big, like, base training time for me. But then I think also just I'm naturally talented at running, you know, and back in high school and college and being a miler, I think I naturally have some leg speed, which I think has really helped me get all those, the marathon time down. Yeah. And I think we've just progressed slowly. You know, we haven't rushed it. We've been really patient, which I think is like the secret sauce to marathon training is just being patient. If you put it all in too fast, like you can get injured or get sick or something, you can get burnt out. And for me, like he was just really patient in developing me. So I don't know. I just think Scott Roscoe is just an incredible coach. And I think uh, I work pretty hard. So
0: you talked about Berlin in February of 2020. So that's just Mm -hmm. pre-pandemic. There was a great article in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago called how I outran the pandemic doldrums by a guy named Mark Nida. And in it, he said, according to run repeat, 29% of all runners worldwide started running during the pandemic. So we're seeing this great Renaissance of running during the pandemic. And there were some really interesting things that he talked about in there. of some person who literally ran a marathon on a 28 foot balcony in their I Berlin apartment, that. I don't know that you saw That's that. Crazy, yeah. You ran a 1504, 5000 meters during the pandemic and took a full minute off of your own PR that you'd done 15 years previously. So talk about that of just kind of going out and banging out a a 1504, 5000 meter during the pandemic on your own and just said, why not? Let's go see what we can do and taking a minute off your previous PR
1: do you know how good it feels to like beat your college self? Like that feels (laughs) so good. But that was was a cool, but you know, when the pandemic shut the world down in my head, I'm like, well, running's not canceled. And while everything else was slowing down, everyone was locking down. Running is a really like safe sport you can do on your own time. And, and I just like put the pedal to the metal, you know, like I'm in my late thirties. I don't know how long my body is going to handle this. I think I'm doing it smart and building on the right way. So I think I definitely have years ahead of me, but I kind of was like, well, I'm not going to stop. Like My goal is to find my limits and I can still do that even though there's not races or there's not train groups or whatever. I'm going to still just keep the pedal to the metal. So we were training really hard and I find it a huge blessing for me in COVID with just having those goals still and working towards things. I think that It kept me really sane in an otherwise very chaotic time. And then we just set up a little time trial on the track. And my buddy had a camera. So I'm like, hey, you want to come film this just so I have like proof of what's going to happen? I had no idea really what I'd run that day. But that was crazy because I thought I was capable of running that time. But I didn't really stop to think of what that time meant. So that time, that's the Olympic standards 5K for the world. It was, I think, like a top five time in the world ever for women over 35. And here I was kind of just in this little, like it was 6am a high school track up my street. So that was really cool. And that also went viral. So then I think that's when I started popping up on people's radar because the headline is always like, mom, realtor, runs fast, you know? So people, it always like kind of confuses people. But that was the start of a really like incredible 2020 for me. And then I put on my own 10-mile race. You and did turns-
0: your up dog. You, <laughs> yeah. you did up dog. And you ran up What's, up 20 dog Will- What's up dog, What's
1: up dog? up dog? Yeah, that's the cool thing about putting your own race on is you get to pick the name. So I'm like, well, if I'm going to pick it, I'm going to make it the up dog race. And that's where I set the women's American record for 10 miles. So it was just a fun opportunity to like, I don't know, just to have just some random goals and find fun ways and just to keep running like really fun, but still like track the progress and keep adding.
0: So you set the American record on the 10 mile at the Updog, And by the way, just as one quick anecdote on it, you're on the coordinating committee for the cherry blossom, which I've run <laughs> plenty of times. And I ran the army 10 miler. A number of years ago, I came across the finish line and I was with my buddy who I ran it with and we're sitting there and all of a sudden Joan Benoit Samuelson comes across the finish line. And so we're still in the shoots coming out of it. And I, Joan Benoit Samuelson was competing in Boston back when I ran Boston and she's a star. And so I went over to say hi to her and she totally dissed me Kira. And I'm sitting here and I'm like, I just beat you in the army 10 miler and you're not even giving me any credit to just say hi. Maybe
1: know. that's why. Cause Joan is a competitor, man. Yeah, I think that's she probably just, like, it. the she nicest. Like, I to like that that better a few, few times, yeah. but that know. is so funny. She's like, man, never again. She has her eyes on you. Willie.
0: Exactly. <laughs> she did. It Totally dissed me. I was like, you could have at least like, I walked up and said, I'm such a huge fan. She was like, I don't want to talk to you, but anyway, oh, man, um, oh, that's so bad. you set the American record and then you go pro. And I love, love, love reading about you signing your Nike contract. And by the way, boy, is Nike ever, I mean, did they ever get it right by signing you up? I mean, they're obviously sitting there saying she's got potential and whatever, but the story that's come together around Houston and mom and realtor and now American record holder is just, I mean, it's a dream come true from a marketing standpoint. But go back to signing up with Nike in February because you went pro again. I mean, like you were pro once, then you were mm-hmm. tired. Just talk me through like the conversations of talking to Portland or it's not in Portland. Where's their headquarters? Just, outside. yeah, no,
1: it's in, in Portland. Yeah, yeah.
0: In Beaverton. Isn't it? Be- yeah. It's not it, yeah, Beaverton, Beaverton. Yeah, yeah. Beaverton, but talking to Beaverton and signing up just the excitement and euphoria of being a sponsored athlete at 38 years old. You may have actually been 37 then, but the bottom line is a mom of two, a full-time job. And now all of a sudden you're back to being sponsored by the biggest brand on earth.
1: Yeah. I think initially I was hesitant towards sponsorship because everything's working, right? Like, why would I rock the boat? Like, for whatever reason, I felt very powerful that it was an unsponsored athlete doing it my way, setting my own goals. Like, I don't know. I keep saying this, but sticking it to the man. I felt like I was sticking it to the system a little bit that you don't need a sponsor to be able to run fast, you know, and people feel like they're pigeoned or whatever into this one path. I didn't want that really to be me. But when Nike approached and I've been running, I was running in Nike shoes for a decade and I wasn't getting injured. I was feeling really healthy. I just loved Nike shoes. But when they approached, they're like, listen, we don't want you to move. You don't have to change your coach. You don't have to do anything differently. Like we want you to keep being you. We love that you're a realtor. We think like you found a really great balance to your life, which is why you're having this success. And we just want to support you. And so I was like, oh yeah, this sounds awesome. Yeah. I mean, I run in Nike shoes. I love their gear and uh, it's been really awesome to be part of that Nike family now. So that's, I'm really appreciative of their support. And now just there are definitely perks of being a sponsored athlete. So it's been kind of fun.
0: So I'm sure a lot of people listening want to know which shoe you run. in. I think you train in the zoom fly and you race in the vapor fly next percent. What's the difference between the two shoes?
1: Yeah, so the Nike Zoom Fly is like the training version of the Vaporfly and Alpha Fly. So it's a trainer shoe. It's a little bit heavier, but there is a plate in it. So you're feeling a little bit of that ride similar to the Vaporfly. So I love love that training shoe. I've been testing out some other shoes recently too to see if I can kind of alternate some different shoes or whatever for my training runs. And I'm really excited about some of the ones I've been trying. But And then for like track workouts, I do the Vaporfly. And like anything shorter, like half marathon and shorter, that's a shoe that I'll race in. It feels like super responsive. Like you just, I don't know, you just, cadence just feels so good and so smooth. And then for the Chevron Houston Marathon, I actually raced an Alpha Fly, which is similar to the Vaporfly that with the plate, but it's just a little softer and it's built for marathons. And especially with Houston being on cement rather than pavement, which is a little bit tougher. I wanted a shoe that maybe was absorbing a little bit more of that. keeping my legs a little fresher and the shoe works great. (laughs) I love the shoe. So yeah, I think going forward, probably marathons, I'll be alpha fly. And then anything shorter than marathon, I'll go to vapor fly and then training is flexible. I've done a lot of like some of my long runs in alpha vapor to so I can recover quicker, which is a really great thing of just how technology and shoes have advanced who Joan Benoit didn't have when she was running. But I think that's really helped me be able to like load the miles on and recover quicker.
0: And as post-race, Monday morning, you're on the Today Show. Good morning, America, I guess it was. Um, the Today Show. Yeah, it was the today, uh, today Show. It was the yeah. Today Show, all right. I mean, I can only imagine that Nike's sitting there going, man, oh, man, now we've really got a storyline here. We can really promote this. Has the last two weeks been filled with a lot of discussions with Nike about everything from shoes to promotions and things of that nature? Or has it been pretty much kind of how it was beforehand?
1: yeah a little bit of both they sent like a whole big team out to Houston and I was going to meet with them afterwards just to give them feedback on shoes and hear like you know the new things coming out and apparel and that was awesome they brought so many donuts we had like a little celebration there so that was really fun just just chat with them donuts and,
0: that's what we all ought to aspire to when we turn pro is that we get donuts we get from, donuts like, man. Uh, and they were know. like
1: donuts with bacon and cereal <laughs> it was like just some really crazy outrageous donuts which was awesome Oreos There was one with just stacks of Oreos on the donuts. Yeah, and then so I really appreciate because they do a lot of behind the scenes work and then they'll kind of fill me in. So I'll be doing a chat with, I think three to 500 of their employees in the next like week or two. And they're kind of coming up with some other marketing initiatives. They have a couple really cool programs that they want me to help out with in the coming days. So I love that, man, because I just feel like running has given so much to me that it's important so much like down to my core to like give back through running and to have some sort of a platform to stand on and be able to support others finding this passion or just like in the community. It's really important for me to be involved and just especially with like kids young age, like getting in and finding running and it's just a really special thing. So it's, I really love the opportunities just to be able to like reach out and connect with people.
0: I love some of your social media posts. The day that you signed with Nike, you wrote, I turned pro dude. And I was just curious, <laughs> I was just curious, who's dude? Who, are you, I don't who know. are you referring to on dude?
1: I have no idea. I say dude all the time. And people are like, yeah, you clearly were born in like the eighties or whatever. Cause that was like <laughs> an eighties or nineties term that I just never really grew out of, but I'll call like my son dude or my husband, dude, I call people dude all the time. And they're like, what? They're just confused as people. I don't know. I just love that word though. I think it's just a good filler for me when I don't know what else to say.
0: And on a lot of your Strava posts, you put awesome, awesome, like (laughs) limericks and jokes on your run. So you go out for some casual run, you come back with this wonderful title to it. That's a really funny, where'd you come up with writing that on your Strava post?
1: Well, it started as I got the jokes from like the Popsicle sticks that my kids were eating, you know, where you get like a joke at the end and you have to eat the Popsicle stick to find what the answer is. So they started from there and then I just started like remembering I have probably one of the worst memories in the world, but somehow I hear a joke and it's just stored up in my brain. I think that's taking up all the storage instead of like the important, like ask me what I have for breakfast. I have no idea, but ask me a joke I heard in fourth grade and I can tell it to you. So that's just maybe how my mind works. And then so I just started putting that into Strava. And I did it enough that when I stopped and people were like, hey, boo, morning runs, not a joke. And I was like, "Okay, the people are liking this. They're playing into my. So then I just like I kept it going. At one point, I tried to switch to like something else. And people like get back to the jokes, get back to what you're good at. So, yeah, I just put jokes. But it's also like, you know, when you're searching through Strava, which I absolutely love Strava. And I think it's a really cool way to connect with the running community and support others, give them the kudos. It can kind of be a little like dull. So I'm like, you know what, if they get like a little laugh from like my weird little post in there, then I'm doing a good job.
0: It's super fun to see. I when you think about all that it's taken for you to get back to where you are and now at this level. I was asking Courier actually in hindsight on his career where he'd run four tournaments he won French twice, he'd won Australian twice. And at that moment, he was the number one tennis player in the world. And if he'd looked back, that was 1993, January of 93 was his Australian Open. And he he was a pro tennis player for the next seven years. But that was the pinnacle of his career. Mm -hmm. Here you are, 38 mother of two full-time career outside of running. And now all of a sudden you're not only the American record holder in the marathon, but now the expectations are building. It's, mm-hmm. is she going to go to the Olympics? Is she going to run the marathon in the Olympics? I was also surprised that you're still thinking about running shorter distances of the 5,000 meters and 10,000 meters. So two questions there. How does it feel with the expectations being built for you again? And then the second thing is I do want to get to that 5,000 meter and 10,000 meter where you're actually going to continue to train to try and run at the Olympics at that distance.
1: Yeah. The expectations don't really, I don't know. It doesn't really, I don't feel any pressure from it. Right. Because like, I know what my goals are and I know what I'm working towards. And kind of like we mentioned earlier, like even on the starting line of the Houston marathon, I was thinking I'm either going to get the American record today or I'm not. And if I don't, you know what i'm happy you know like i'll be in the exact same position i am now so i kind of feel like that way going towards the olympics like i make it known that that's my goal and i'm training towards this but if i fall short and i don't make it well you know what i'll be in the same spot i am now and that's okay too so i really don't feel any pressure from those expectations i have a lot of things that i want to accomplish and a lot of i call it like unfinished business but i think what's so powerful for me is like in my first round I didn't hit any of those goals and I learned how to forgive myself for not. And it's not that bad. Failing's not that bad. Like I didn't hit any of that stuff and I was still happy. Life goes on. Like I know what it is to fail and it's not that bad, but I also know what it is to fail and how I lived with that for a decade, just thinking, what if, oh, that could have been, should have been, would have been. So it's such a unique spot for me to have experienced that because failing's not that bad. But also I don't want to fail anymore. Like I've done that. Like, I want to see what happens when I can like push through and succeed. So, and then as far as just the five and 10 K. My coach and I naturally kind of take like the first half of the year, train for shorter events like the mile, 5K, 10K. And the second half, we put in a little bit more mileage and train a little bit more marathon specific training. And I think just every time I can bring my mile, my 5K, my 10K times down, my marathon gets even stronger and vice versa. The stronger I can get in the marathon coming in to run like a 5K or 10K, I have a lot of strength that I can put into that. So I think I'm a pretty... Dynamic runner, I think that there's a lot on the track that I haven't done. You know, I think if on the Houston Marathon day, if you would have said, you know what, course is closed, we're going to do a 5k or 10k, I think I would have pr'd in all of those distances that day. So I'm really excited to get an opportunity on the track. And my PR right now is a 15:04, and I'm pretty confident I go under 15. And if I can do that, I mean, I'd be running with some of the best in the nation. And and then my 10k, I have big goals for the 10k. I think that that I have an opportunity to maybe make the Team USA for World Championships this summer. And it's actually in Eugene, Oregon. So the first time it's ever been on US soil. So to be able to be, you know, part of Team USA for that would be really special. But I think training from that doesn't detract from my other goals. I think it only enhances them. So, and it's fun, right? When I only have to run for 15 minutes, that's like way better than running for two hours and 19 minutes, right? It's over <laughs> so much quicker. So.
0: Have any other Olympians who did the marathon run the 10,000 meters? Is that common? I I just, I have no idea. Is that wildly uncommon that someone would do the 10,000 meters and then also compete in the marathon?
1: Yeah, I think there's been a handful of women like Shalane Flanagan was a really competitive 10K runner. Dina Castor, she also, you know, was a phenomenal 10K runner. So I think that more common than not, people move up in distance and they'll start with the 5K and 10K and then they'll eventually move up to the marathon So I think it is a little unique that I'm kind of going back and forth, but I remember like watching Shalane Flanagan or Dina Castor leaning into marathon races, they'd be able to crush a 10K, you know? So I think that that really is a good sign of kind of your fitness too. So I don't think it's too uncommon, but yeah, I don't know.
0: But as it relates to the longer distance and the shorter distance, I was going on to training and nutrition and sleep. Do you wear an aura ring or a whoop strap?
1: I don't. I have like on my watch, it does heart rate and stuff. So I can kind of see, but to me, the number one recovery tool we all have is sleep, right? So that's something that's really important to me. I read that a lot of elite athletes, they even take naps. I don't have, I don't have the time to take a nap in the middle of the day, but I am really careful to get enough sleep every night. And then as far as nutrition, like with marathon, you just burn through so much. So I'm really, really careful that I'm, Eating enough and getting enough of what my body needs. I've worked with Inside Tracker, which has helped let me know my biomarkers and what's lacking. And so I can kind of tailor my like meals and everything that way. But that's a big piece of the puzzle, too. Because if you don't have the energy, you're not going to be able to add to your load.
0: And do you generally train in the morning or the afternoon, given that you're a full-time mom and also have a full-time job. Something tells me that unlike most professional athletes who set their life around their training schedule, your training schedule works in with your life.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I I like running in the morning more. So usually I'll get the kids on the bus and be in my running clothes and just run out. The bus actually does like a funny loop. And like, I can cut through a neighborhood that I can actually try to race the bus. So sometimes on on runs, I'm like, okay, kids, I'm going to race you today. Let's see if we can get Yes. I like getting in the morning. And I also just, the sooner you add those workouts in your day, the more likely that's going to happen. So just from like getting back into this and finding how running fit in my life. It's just so much more likely to happen if I get up and do it before everything. But also as far as real estate, nothing really happens in the morning, like the paperwork and everything. Everything is around my client schedule or home inspections usually don't start then. So I just, I try to get all my running done just so I'm ready for the day. And then I feel great all day and I can eat whatever I want for lunch rather than thinking if I run after lunch, I got to eat something light. So yeah, I just like to start off the day with a run.
0: And from a recovery standpoint, I was looking at your Strava feeds post-Houston, and you've been running at what is a relatively pedestrian pace of like 720s and 740s. There was actually a run you went out and you did 8s, 803s or something. How important is recovery and rest once you've done something like Houston? And how consistent are you in giving your body time to rest versus maybe previously in your career when you were younger of pushing it and constantly trying to up and up and up the times and stay at much, much faster paces?
1: Yeah, I think that every race is a little different. I think usually for me in between seasons, how we kind of do six months of like speed work and then six months of marathon, we kind of take a few weeks off after that. And usually it's one week completely off and then one week running if I feel like it, which sometimes mean I don't even run that week or sometimes I do. But I think it depends on the race. Like that Houston marathon took a lot out of me. Like I was feeling like I don't drink, but I felt hung over for like a week after that race. So I think just kind of listening to my body and if I can't let my body recover after that, how am I going to build? So, you know, marathons take a while too. I think it's like a good month before everything kind of you get back to some equilibrium in your body. So we're really careful with that rest.
0: So my final question for you, and I'm so appreciative you spending this time to talk about it because your story is, it's so amazing, Karen, in just so many facets. And from a mental health standpoint, a physical health standpoint, the comeback after having surgery, the very normal way you got back to running is such an incredible storyline that at least as somebody who loves to run and who loves to exercise, but also understands that, you know, my day in the sunshine never ever will be like yours, but at the same time, your story is so compelling and exciting to get out there and strap on the shoes and go for a run, which I think quite honestly is what's just the whole marketing theme, if you will, for Nike behind you and what you've done is that everyone can associate with it. Everyone can understand failing. They can't really understand getting back to it and getting back to it at the level that you've gotten to it, but it's such an inspiring story. I thank you so much for sharing it with us. But there's also a story that you have long been a proponent that that running socks need to be washed inside out.
1: (laughs) Oh, that is so funny. (laughs) 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 Willie, you have done your homework. And and I'm just I'm just really curious
0: about whether there's any truth to running socks being washed inside out to keep them fluffier or better to work or whether that's a little bit of a white lie from Kira.
1: So it actually, there is a little bit of truth to that, but it started as a white lie because my husband, we were doing laundry. This was in the first year of our marriage. We've been married for 10 years now. And he'd be like, Hey, Kira, do you think you can like flip your socks the right way before putting them in the laundry? Cause then we don't have to flip them before folding. And like in my head, I just got defensive. I'm like, well, that's actually the best way to wash the socks. And he's like, what? I'm like, yeah, yeah. You actually, I do that purposely, not because I'm lazy. I do that purposely because that's the best way to wash them. And then, so then later I'm like Googling, like, is that right? Or did I just make, like, I just got defensive. I don't know why I said that. So I found two articles. I sent it to him from like reliable sources, like a runner's world or something, saying that it does help protect the integrity of the sock. So for the next 10 years of our marriage, every time I'm folding laundry, all of his socks are inside out and I'm flipping them the right way before folding them. It just eventually I just had to like tell him, like, listen, <laughs> I made that up. And I told him actually on our 10 year anniversary, I like wrote this letter saying, you know what? The truth is I was just lazy that day. You got me. Can we get back to just putting our socks in the right way? So that's pretty funny. But I think it is good, but it's annoying for folding.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's a great story and a great anecdote. And I will tell you, given your story, I don't think there's a person who would ever call you lazy. So uh, (laughs) anyway, thank you, Kara. It's a real pleasure. I love the fact that you don't feel any pressure on you. But for all of us who watch you, we're all rooting for you. And it would be really fun to see you in the Olympic Games in Paris. And good luck in the training. Good luck with motherhood. Good luck with work. And thanks again for joining me today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Willie. You have been so fun to talk to. I would love to like go for a run or a bike with you sometime. And then also like I was telling Susan right before we got on that like as far as the pressure, like I set out on this very like internal goal. And along the way, I've been so humbled by the support and like the appreciation and just women or parents or people that ran that don't anymore, just reaching out saying that they've pulled a little inspiration from my story it is so powerful to feel that support. And just like you inviting me on to your webcast, I was looking through like all the people. I'm like, I don't belong here. Like one of these is not like the other, it's me. Like I just am so flattered and humbled that you took the time and wanted to chat with me. So thank you for this beautiful experience. It was really fun talking with you.
0: It's fantastic. Thank you everyone for joining us today. And we'll be back next week with another Walker webcast. Thanks, Kira.